Hello, I'm Rowan, and this is the fourth episode of the Players, Goods, and Information podcast, where we will be talking about yet another race, class, and monster from 5th edition D&D. Today, we are starting off with the Cleric. So, Clerics are like uh, divine healers with magical abilities that have fighting abilities as well, like a cross between a fighter or a priest. And, uh, when creating a cleric, you want wisdom to be your highest score, followed by either strength or constitution, depending on if you'd like to focus more on heavy hitting or on taking the heavy hits. And you also gain the following class features. As a cleric, you get 1d8 as your hit dice, and at first level you get 8, plus your constitution modifier, and at higher levels it's 1d8 plus your constitution modifier for every level after first. Um, You gain proficiencies in light armor, medium armor, shields, simple weapons, but no tool proficiencies, and you gain proficiency in the saving throws wisdom and charisma, and you can choose two skills from history, insight, medicine, persuasion, and religion. As a, cl- as a cleric, you start with some basic equipment, including a mace or a warhammer, if you're proficient with either. Um, you can choose scale mail, leather armor, or chain mail, if you're proficient with any of those. A light crossbow and 20 bolts, or B, any simple weapon if you want that instead. Um, you, can inc- you can have a priest pack or an explorer's pack depending on if you want to have a priest pack or an explorer's pack. And you can have a shield and a holy symbol, which can be very useful sometimes when using casting certain spells against undeads and fiends sometimes. As a cleric, you actually have the ability to channel divine power into spell casting. And so at first level, you know three cantrips of your choice from the cleric's cantrip spell list. And you learn additional clerical cantrips of your choice at higher levels. And you can also prepare and cast spells similar to a wizard can. As a cleric, you can actually cast certain spells as a ritual, if they have the ritual tag. And you have to focus, um, and you have to have the spell prepared to cast any cleric spell as a ritual, but it also has to have the ritual tag on it, so make sure you're actually casting a spell that can be casted as a ritual, and not something else that's really random and pointless. You can also use your holy symbol as a spell casting focus for any of your cleric spells. You, As a cleric, you can choose one divine domain between life, light, Nature, Tempest, Trickery, Knowledge, or War. There are probably more of these in other books that I do not have at this moment. The ones listed here are simply from the Player's Handbook. So if you... If there's one that I didn't list there, that might be why. Just so you know. But, uh... Each domain has details at the end of the class descriptions, which I will be reading. And each one provides a different example of gods associated with it. 
Your choice grants you domain spells and other features when you use it at first level. It also grants you additional ways to ch use channel divinity when you gain that feature at second level, and additional benefits at sixth, eighth, and seventeenth levels. Each clerical domain has its own spells, and so spells similar to, but not limited to, if you decide to go with the knowledge domain, you gain the spells command, identify at first level, augury and suggestion at third level, non-detection and speak with the dead at fifth level, arcane eye and confusion at seventh level, and legend lore and scrying at ninth level. If you decide to choose the life domain, you would get bless and cure wounds at first level, lesser restoration and spiritual weapon at third level, beacon of hope and revivify at fifth level, death ward and guardian of faith at seventh level, mass cure wounds and raise dead at ninth level. If you were to choose the light domain, then you would have gained Burning Hands and Fairy Fire at first level, Flaming Sphere and Scorching Ray at third level, Daylight and Fireball at fifth level, yes, Fireball, Guardian of Faith and Wall of Fire at seventh level, Flame Strike and Stri Scrying at ninth level. Personally, I would have chosen the Light because I personally really enjoy Fireball as a spell because, well, Fireball. But, uh, if you choose the nature domain, you gain animal friendship and speak with animals at first level, bark skin and spike growth at third level, giant plant growth and wind wall at fifth level, dominate beast and grasping vine at seventh level, insect plague and tree stride at ninth level. If you were to choose the tempest domain, you would gain fog cloud and thunder wave at first level, Gust of Wind and Shatter at 3rd level, Call Lightning and Sleet Storm at 5th level, Control Water and Ice Storm at 7th level, and Destructive Wave and Insect Plague at ninth level. The Trickery Domain, you will gain Charm Person and Disguise Self at 1st level, Mirror Image and Pass Without Trace at 3rd level, Blink and Dispel Magic at 5th level, Dimension Door and Polymorph at 7th level, Dominate person and modify memory at ninth level. And if you were to choose the war domain, you would gain divine favor and shield of faith at first level, magic weapon and spiritual weapon at third level, crusader's mantle and spirit guardian at fifth level, freedom of movement and stone skin at seventh level, and flame strike and hold monster at ninth level. Those are all of the domain spells. And, uh, Depending on which one you choose, you will gain some of these spells. So, at second level, you gain the ability Channel Divinity, where you can channel divine energy directly from your deity, whichever one you chose, using that energy to create magical effects. You can start with two such effects, Turn Undead, and an effect determined by your domain. So let's say I chose the knowledge domain, then I would have gained knowledge of the ages, where I can tap into a divine well of knowledge. Or if I chose the nature domain, I would gain 
divine channel divinity charm animals and plants see depending on what your domain is it will be different and uh pretty much when you use your channel divinity you can choose which effect to create of your two then you have to finish any rest short or long to use your channel divinity again some divin channel divinity effects actually do require saving throws when you use such an effect from this class, the DC equals your cleric spell save DC. And actually at 6th level, you can use your channel divinity twice between rests. And beginning at 18th level, you can use it three times between rests. When you finish a short or long rest, you regain your expended uses. So let's say I'm 1st level. No, I have to be 2nd. I'm 3rd level. And I'm going to use my channel divinity to... I'm going to use the Knowledge Domain Channel Divinity ability to, um, prof I have proficiency with the Chosen Skill or Tool, so I'm going to choose, hmm, how about Perception, alright? So now I have to finish a short or long rest before I can use that again, and, uh, yeah, pretty useful in certain situations. Then... Um, let's say I decided to use the domain spell Radiance of the Dawn for the Light Domain using Channel Divinity, and it, uh, it pretty much, you throw your holy symbol and magical darkness within 30 feet of you is dispelled. Actually, additionally, each hostile creature within 30 feet of you is the same radius as the darkness, must make a constitution saving throw, and if you fail the saving throw, they take 2d10 damage and have as much on a successful save. Any creature that has a total cover from you is not affected. So if the creature you're trying to affect is hiding behind a boulder, they will, and you, they, you cannot see them at all, you will definitely not affect them with this. And, uh, yeah. At 4th level, 8th level, 12th level, 16th level, and 19th level, you get an ability score improvement, where you can increase one ability score by two points, or two ability scores by one point, similar to the other classes. At 5th level, if an undead fails its saving throw against your turn undead, the creature is instantly destroyed if its challenge rating is at or below a certain threshold. So, at 5th level destroys undead of challenge rating one half or lower, of 8th level, challenge rating one or lower, 11th level, two or lower, 14th level, three or lower, and 17th level, four or lower. At 10th level, you can call on your deity to intervene on your behalf when your need is great, and you can ask your deity to in intervene on your behalf. And to do this, you have to use your action, however. And you have to describe the assistance you seek and roll percentage dice. So 2d10. If you roll a number equal to or lower your, than your cleric level, then your deity will intervene. The dungeon master chooses the nature of the intervention, which could be the effect of any cleric spell or clerical domain spell that would be appropriate. If your deity intervenes, you cannot use this feature again for a whole week, seven days. Otherwise, you can use it again after you finish a long rest. At 20th level, you can call for an intervention 
and you succeed automatically without having to roll the percentile dice. And then, of course, there, the, there are the divine domains, which are knowledge, life, light, nature, tempest, trickery, and war. And each one will deal in and give you abilities concerning the names of the domains. So the war will give you stuff that will help you with combat and fighting, and nature will help you with nature and animals and plants. I won't go into too much detail about the divine domains, just because there's so many of them, and I do have a small amount of time to record each episode here. And so, I hope you really don't mind, I can't help it. That is all for the cleric today. But I will have you know that if you are going to play a cleric, um, they can be very fun characters to play if you like role-playing. Especially because um, some of their spells are really useful. Yeah, just so you know. For our race, we have halflings. And they are these small but practical humanoids. And they are usually very kind and can be quite curious at times and make amazing rogues if you want to pair halfling and rogue together but uh... yeah they look exactly like humans but smaller and have different facial appearances sometimes they'll have different body proportions yeah they can be very interesting and they uh... are actually very good at blending into crowds and can usually make themselves valuable and wel welcome in these crowds. The combination of their inherent stealth and their unassuming nature helps halflings to avoid unwanted attention. And halflings will work readily with others, and they are loyal to their friends, whether halfling or otherwise. They could have a human friend, or a half-orc friend, a dwarf friend, a tiefling friend. They would still be loyal and friendly towards them. They can also display remarkable ferocity when their friends, families, or communities feel threatened. And they usually set out on adventure paths to defend their communities, support their friends, or explore a wide and wonder-filled world. For them, adventuring is less than a career and more of an opportunity, or sometimes a necessity. Some halflings have names. Well, most halflings will have names. However, due to the fact I don't want to mispronounce anything, I will not be pronouncing or reading off any of these names. I am sorry. Some halfling traits include an ability score increase, which is your dexterity score will increase by two. This is why halflings can make very good rogues, is because rogues rely on their dexterity to sneak and do other roguelike traits. And so, if you're a halfling, your dexterity score will increase by two points. And a halfling reaches adulthood, usually, at the age of 20, and generally lives in the middle of his or her second century. Um, the alignment of halflings, most are lawful good. As a rule, they are good-hearted and kind, and hate to see others in pain, and have absolutely no tolerance for oppression. They are also very orderly and very traditional, leaning heavily on the support of their community and the comfort of their old ways. So the, ha the halflings would be more likely 
to stick with tradition than to branch out and try something completely new that they've never heard of before. They'd have to slowly get used to it. And halflings are usually about three feet tall and weigh about 40 pounds. Instead of medium, your size is small. The fact that you are not man-sized and so cannot uh, classify under the same category. Your base walking speed is 25 feet, which is less than the human's 30 feet, or the dwarf's 25, I'm pretty sure. However, you make up for that in extreme luck. When you roll a 1 on the d20 for an attack roll, ability check, or saving throw, you can re-roll the dice and must new use the new roll. If you re-roll and you get a 1, you have to use that 1. You cannot re-roll and re-roll and re-roll forever. You have to use the roll that you re-rolled. I said re-roll a lot there, I'm sorry. You also have advantage on saving throws against being frightened, and you can move through the space of any creature that is one size or larger than yours. So, if you... you can, in the middle of combat, actually, move through the space of another creature to get that size up than you, and you can get on the other side of them without having to slow down, move them, or go around, which is very useful. Halflings can speak, read, and write, common and halfling. The halfling language isn't a secret language, but halflings are loath to share it with others, and they write very little, so they don't have a rich body of literature. Their oral tradition, however, is very strong. Almost all halflings speak common to converse with people in whose lands they dwell or through which they are traveling. And there are two main kinds of halfling subraces, Whitefoot and Stout halflings, and are more like closely related families than true subraces. You can choose one of the subraces. There may be more subraces that I don't know about, that might be in like Unearthed Arcana or Xanathar's Guide to Everything. I have absolutely no idea. So these are just the ones in the player's handbook again. And as a Whitefoot halfling, you can easily hide from a notice, even using other people as cover, and you are inclined to be nice and kind and friendly and get along with others. And in the Forgotten Realms, Lightfoot Halflings usually spread the farthest and thus are the most common variety of halfling. And Lightfoots are more prone to wanderlust than other halflings and often dwell alongside other races or take up a nomadic life. For example, in the world of Greyhawk, these halflings are called Harefeet, or tall, tall Fellows. As a Lightfoot Halfling, your Charisma score also increases by one, and you are naturally stealthy, and can attempt to hide even when you are obscured by only a creature that is at least one size larger than you. So if you are a Halfling, and you would want to hide from another, you can hide behind a human that is directly in front of you, and that will count as hiding. As a Stout Halfling, you're hardier than the average and have some resistance to poisons. Some say that stout halflings have dwarven blood in their ancestry. In the Forgotten Realms, these halflings are called stronghearts, but they and they are most common to the south. And your constitution score increases by one as a lightfoot half as a stout halfling, and you gain stout resilience, where you have advantage on saving throws against poison, and you have resistance against poison damage. That is all for the halfling today. Next we will be moving on to our monster, the Shield Guardian. 
Some wizards and other spellcasters can create shield guardians for protection, and a shield guardian treads beside its master, absorbing damage to keep its master as alive as long as possible. So, a shield guardian, imagine a bodyguard, that will no matter what put itself before you. And normally they are created by spellcasters of any sort, most commonly wizards. Every shield guardian has a amulet that is magically linked to it, and any shield guardian can have only one amulet corresponding, and if that amulet is destroyed, the shield guardian is incapacitated until replacement is created. A shield guardian's amulet is subject to direct attack if it is not being worn or carried, and it has armor class 10, 10 hit points, and immunity to poison or psychic damage, being a inanimate object. Crafting an amulet requires one week and costs a thousand gold pieces in components. So yes, you do have to pay to craft an extra amulet. And a shield guardian's solitary focus is to protect its master, and the, its master is whoever wears the amulet. So, if your character were to put on its amulet, it would technically have to obey you. However, the dungeon master can change that to say that the shield guardian can only obey its creator. However, the amulet's wearer can command the guardian to attack its enemies, or to guard the wielder against attack. If any attack threatens to injure the wearer, the construct, the shield guardian, can magically absorb the blow into itself, even if it's at a distance. The spellcaster can store a single spell within, within the shield guardians, which they can then cast on command under specific conditions. Many wizards have been rendered helpless by enemies, only su to surprise those foes when its shield guardian unleashes potent magical power. So, that would be very useful if, for example, you were out of spell slots, however, your shield guardian happened to have a fireball in it. I mean, that's bad news for everybody, because fireball, but at the same time, it's good news for you, because you still have a spell. Just normally, maybe you wouldn't pick Fireball because, well, Fireball. Sometimes, because a Shield Guardian's ownership can be transferred by giving its amulet to another creature, some wizards will collect lots and lots of money from princes, nobles, and crime lords, and are paid to create Shield Guardians for them. At the same time, however, a Shield Guardian makes a great prize for anyone who defeats its master and claims its amulet. A shield guardian doesn't have to have air, food, drink, or sleep, being a construct. That's all for the shield guardian today, and yeah, I hope you enjoyed. Here are some last minute facts about the shield guardian as a monster. Number one, the shield guardian is magically bound to the amulet, and whoever holds the amulet, it will obey. 2. The shield guardian regains 10 hit points at the start of its turn if it has at least one hit point. 3. A spellcaster who wears the shield guardian's amulet can cause the guardian to store one spell 4th level or lower. 4. The shield guardian can make two fist attacks on its turn. 5. The shield guardian has both strength and constitution at 18. 6. The shield guardian has a single reaction which allows it to absorb the attack of another attack. So, if the 
creature attacking makes an attack against the wearer of the guardian amulet, the guardian will grant a plus two bonus to the wearer's armor class if the guardian is within five feet. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And sorry if it's a little bit shorter than usual today. Um, I didn't go into too much detail about the clerical domains just because there's so many of them. And sorry if that's what you were looking really. That's what you were mostly looking forward to. Um, I may do that in a separate episode into detail about specifically clerical domains, and I'll try to look into those from other sources as well as the player handbook. Well, hope you enjoyed. Farewell, adventurers.